Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish Best. For folks who don't know me, hi! Go come grab in and get, come grab a cocktail. You want to go grab a cocktail? Hi, Miguel. You want a cocktail? Um, my name is Susan. For anyone who doesn't know me, I live here. Thanks for coming tonight. Thank you. I know there's lots of you standing. You can sit on the counter. You can sit on the floor. There's stools. Uh, okay, so a couple of housekeeping things. I know there's a few people who have never been here before. Please take your plates back to the kitchen. I made the food for you, so that's my request back. Thank you. Um, let's see. Other housekeeping things. Our next salon is on the 27th in L.A. I am interviewing the explorer and naturalist Paul Rosalie, thanks to these guys. Um, so that'll be fine if anyone happens to be in L.A. Or if there's anyone you think that we should invite, please let me know. And then the next event here in New York is on the 12th of October with WNYC, and we're doing it actually over at their space, um, at the green space. For anyone who's been here more than once, this will be an opportunity for you to give back. It's a ticketed event. <laughs> so it's in the green space, and I'll be interviewing the executive director of the Kinsey Institute about mm. sex in New York City. <laughs> so, and then we'll have an after party here. And if you're here, then you're invited to the after party. But it would be great if you buy a ticket. Um, so there's that. And it's terrible, I never turn off the face thing on here. Um, but tonight is David Gellis. Yeah, tonight is David Gellis. I'm sure many of you know him. If not, you know of him. Only good things, of course. You read him. Maybe read of him as well. I met David when, I think he was at the FT in San Francisco. It was a long time ago. Uh, this is his second book. Um, but he is, he's now over at the Climate Desk at the New York Times. And he's interviewed a lot of CEOs as the corner office columnist. I want to hold up his most recent book. There are a few here, but really you should buy it because that's what we try and do with authors is buy their books, right? Yeah, and by the time you talk to them about it, they can't remember their book anymore. Are you working on a new book? <laughs> um, okay, my first question is, are we talking too much about CEOs these days? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I will answer the question, but first, can I just take a moment and say what a privilege and an honor it is to be sitting up here with you, Susan. Oh, I, don't, I don't care. I, I have truly been coming to your salons for more than a decade, and they, they are like totemic events in my mind. Like, it was a big deal to get invited to some of the podcasts and TV shows, and I was like, great, the press tour is going fine. But then I got the invite to do the post like, yes, I have made it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. His book is about Jack Welch. We may or may not talk about Jack Welch. <laughs> Listen, are we talking about CEOs too much these days? I, I think the answer is I would love it if we didn't have to talk about them so much. Great answer. But they have made themselves impossible right. not to talk about so much. Right. We, how can we not? And this is really the very first few words, few pages of my book are trying to get my head around. And it was just almost like me thinking out loud, how is it that CEOs of all professions have become 
some of the heroes in our civilization. We don't how, have royalty. Right? How, we don't have royalty. We don't have royalty. We've got billionaires. We have billionaires. <laughs> we, we don't have a unified religion in this country, and that's probably a good thing, you could argue. We have CEOs. We don't have a unified artistic culture. We have CEOs. CEOs have made themselves sort of the last uniform cultural touchstones. Mm. And as a result, not only of, of that fact, but of the degree to which they influence politics, culture, mm. finance, legislation, taxation. I want to talk about that later. Like, should, should, should they be? Well, their employees are probably asking them right. right now. I, I, would, I would venture no. Okay. Right? But they have become, they have, they have imposed their will on our society so much that how can we not mm. contend with their influence? So after, how many years were you doing the corner office? I wrote the corner office column in the New York Times, which is a, a column where I interviewed CEOs uh, just about every week or every other week in the Sunday business section, big interviews with them, wrote it for about five years. How many CEOs did you talk to during that, I mean, interview for that? I don't, how many columns is for, that? That's, that's uh, I don't have an exact count, but it was somewhere between 100 and 150. Are they mostly public companies? By and large, probably and mostly. Like, can you imagine how many PR dollars were, were spent by <laughs> tech companies in Silicon Valley? By some people in this room! Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're not big enough, you're not big enough, you're not big enough. All right, well, Jack Welch, let's talk about GE. I learned a lot about GE, yeah. which I didn't know. Started 1881. What did it give America? Oh, my gosh. I mean, GE, in its heyday, and for so much of the 20th century, was like the best of what American capitalism had to offer. Right? Like you look around this house, your own home, and you know, whether it's the refrigerator or the radio or the television, right. Right? all of these modern appliances were introduced or invented by the engineers at GE. Jet engines, x-rays, like the modern era we live in was in large measure invented by this one company mm. to this astonishing degree. And for so long, they were extraordinarily innovative. And then especially for so many decades, right before Jack Welch took over, they were the model public corporation. They made this point of taking care, not only of their investors, but of their employees, of their communities, of the government. Give us an example. Give us a sense of what, like, the 1953 annual report from GE was like. Well, it's funny you ask. <laughs> I happen to have read the book. <laughs> so, I, in the book, I cite the 1953 annual report by GE. It just so happens as as this model of of the way in which corporations were actually defining themselves, right? This is like the company's annual way of like, this is who we are and what we're doing. And what they said was, here's, here, you know, it was our best year ever, we had the most employees ever, we made the most money ever, most sales ever, like everything's just gonzo, we're in the post-war boom era, we're selling everything way faster before, than we can Way make before it. the UK though, of course, right? I mean, America was like booming much faster, and I'm sure... For sure, TV for sure. I mean, this is like, the, the, this is the greatest generation, like, right. in their heyday, starting to make their money in, in earnest. And okay, so what did they say in that 53 annual report? They said, we took great care of our employees. It was our, the first thing they said it was, it was our largest payroll ever. 
We paid more money to our employees than ever before, and we're so proud of it. Next thing they said, we paid more money to our suppliers. We're taking such good care of our suppliers so that they can make excellent parts and components so we can make great products. Oh, and by the way, we paid this much in taxes, and we're so happy to pay that much in taxes、mm. because it means that our communities and our federal government are going to、yeah. be good in good standing for the years ahead. So good yes, corporate after, citizens. Great corporate citizens. And after all that, they said, after all those things, yes, we made a reasonable return. To our investors, a reasonable return, right? Yeah, they returned some money to investors, but it wasn't the way they defined their mission statement.、Mm. And then Jack Welch came in in 1981. And things changed. Things changed.、So、I had to remember what happened in 1981. AIDS was discovered. Reagan was in the office. Oh my gosh. What else was going on? Well,、um, listen. I think it's important, and a lot. Look, some people push back and they'll say, "Listen,、uh-huh. like it wasn't just Jack, right? Everything was changing, and no doubt about it." Like, absolutely. Reagan was elected.、Mm-hmm. Globalization was happening. Japan and Germany were coming online as big industrialized economies. Right? Things were going to change, no doubt. But what Jack did was bring to the biggest, most influential corporation in the United States a completely different mindset. And because he was so influential, and because for so long people had looked to GE as this exemplary corporation from which they took their cues. Everyone else immediately started to change around them.、Mm. And what did he start doing? How did innovation go? Okay. Well, the first thing he did was fire a quarter million people. Okay. <laughs> right out the gate, and, and and he earned the name Neutron Jack, named after the neutron bomb, which ostensibly、uh, kills people while destroying, while leaving the buildings intact. Right, so he was known as Neutron Jack right out the gate. But the other things he started doing was winding down R and D dollars, firing people, and then, thanks to a change from the Reagan administration, all of a sudden buybacks became legal. Share buybacks had been illegal for a half century because they were considered a way for companies to manipulate their own stock. All of a sudden, buybacks are legal. Who's the first CEO to commit to a ten billion dollar buyback program in the 1980s? Jack Welch. He understands right away that that is a way that he can start. Knocking GE's share price up on this inexorable trajectory,、right. and then so other things he does. He starts going all in on the finance division. He goes on a merger spree. He does a thousand. Was fin- tell us about the finance division because that's a big、division. deal. Okay, so GE Capital, which you may have heard. Hey, of. guys, if you're talking, can you go to my office? Thanks. You are totally being called out back there. Called out. <laughs> called out, Mark Allen. Out. Called out. Called out. <laughs> if you're dog, wondering if I'm talking、house. to you, I am talking to you. <laughs> But I love you. Okay. <laughs> It's so distracting. I'm trying to listen to him. Okay. So GE Capital. GE, GE had this division where they would like make loans to people who wanted to like amortize a refrigerator purchase. Jack understands. Wait, there's. He says this. He writes. The amazing thing that happened here is like he did this all in the open. Right? They, they, he said exactly what he was doing. He said it's easier to make money with money than it is by bending steel. And so all of a sudden, he understood that there are profits to be had. And <laughs> to my friends from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan in the front row. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> and he was right. Okay, that's for the after party.、Um, he understands that there's money to be made with money. But GE was not a 
bank for God's sake. <laughs> this was an industrial company that for so long, as we've talked about, it, was made great by making great products. Yeah. But he says, I don't know. There's real money to be made with money. And so he turns this little division that was designed to like help people afford their refrigerator into a $600 billion unregulated bank that is selling Thai auto loans, leasing satellites, buying commercial real estate portfolios, and ultimately, just after he retires, but just before the financial crisis, becomes one of the biggest holder of subprime mortgages in the United States in 2005. Mm. That's where his trajectory took General Electric. Well, and they were slapped then in 2009. They were, but that but was not long much. Right, yeah, but, like, but, but listen, I think Jack has to get credit for basically going out on top. He was, when he retired, Fortune magazine called him manager of the century. I mean, I think he had a back page column I used to look at. For sure. <laughs> I mean, and it wasn't just him. It was Jack and Susie, I know, right? Jack and Susie. Jack right? and Susie, the great reinvention. Yeah, number three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about what, the, the relationship between yeah. employer, and, employer and employee during the Welch mm. years. Um, what was it like? Were... were the employees cite to be working at GE? It depended who you were. And I, I don't, I don't want to you know, completely oversimplify. Yeah. If you were a relatively high-level executive who wanted to play the game that he wanted you to play, which was hit or beat your numbers every quarter by any means necessary. Did he hit every single quarter, by the way, just for some stats for well, those who aren't in the business world? Okay, so I don't, well, let's not get bogged down in technicalities. But <laughs> when people look back on this and, and were like, wait, they met or beat analyst expectations for almost 80 quarters in a row. Jeremy, does that happen naturally? Andrea, does that happen naturally? No. I won't put you on the record, but the, the, the heads of comms for J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs will say, no, that does not happen naturally. So, listen, and, and, and in retrospect, people understood and called him out that like they were playing games with the numbers mm. so so for those 80 quarters it was just unbelievably manufactured earnings it was what they called earnings on demand but if you were one of those top executives who were helping make that happen life was pretty good for you mm. and if you sold that stock when it was still above water you probably did very good mm. Now, if you were working in a factory in GE, if you were part of a union in GE during Jack Welch's 20 years as CEO of this company, it was not such a good scene for you. And, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think there was a, a week or two ago in the New York Times, there was an article that I think got a lot of play, probably based on the reporters who wrote it, about productivity scoring. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Amazing and I'm sure a lot of people saw it. They saw someone write about it. Um, but then that made me sort of think back. That was very Welchian, right? Yeah. Productivity scoring. I don't know how mindfulness in the office there works with productivity scoring. The, a, there was not a lot of mindfulness in Jack Welch's. His first book GE. was about mindfulness in the office place. So. But listen, I couldn't help but find, I, I searched high and low for any connection between the two books, and I found it. Late in his career, Jack Welch tries to reinvent himself as this management guru. And he and Susie hired Daniel Goleman, my friend, the founder of the emotional intelligence movement, a longtime meditator who I have gone on meditation retreats with, to interview him and do this audiobook about emotional intelligent leadership. And I mean, it was the biggest crock of shit ever, right? Because like, Jack Welch was not an emotionally intelligent leader. Let's just put it out there. So the CEOs you interviewed, I mean, you found a lot of them. Why, why did you write this? A lot of them were influenced? Were they split down the middle? 
two things got me to write this book. The first was, I, I, I wrote this corner office column, as you mentioned, interviewed, you know, I interviewed a hundred some odd for the column, but I interviewed- Did you do pre-interviews and like, eh, no, he never. would be good, not good. You already knew who you wanted to interview? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then I did, I, but, but during that time I was covering CEOs for my day right. job in addition, right? And so I, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of CEOs over the last many years for the Times. And one name kept coming up and it was Jack Welch's. And that was just bugging me. I was like, people aren't talking about jobs. They're not talking about Bezos even. They're still using Jack Welch as a reference point. Who's so, a manager, by the way, not an innovator. Without right. a doubt, right? And so he was still this like iconic CEO, even though he'd been retired for almost 20 years. So that just was bugging me. And then I found a story. I like, became the lead reporter on a story that crystallized his enduring influence. And that was the story of what happened to Boeing that led it to design the flawed 737 MAX planes. I was the lead reporter on the team at the Times that really dug I don't in know if and Mary's investigated. Here, but she was a whistleblower attorney on that case. Yeah, okay. We've done a couple of salons with Mary on whistleblower. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it was So great. listen, uh, so we, we started looking into Boeing and we're like, what happened? How did they design such a fucked up plane? And, and, and the answer on the, on the face of it was pretty simple. It was pretty simple. There was a bad software system with some bad hardware and tragically the planes crashed twice in five months, killing 346 people. Terrible, terrible corporate malfeasance. But then we kept digging and we're like, what? how did that happen at Boeing? Because besides General Electric, Boeing was the other company that was like one of the great American bedrock employers, the great industrial employer of, of the United States. And when we started looking, we're like, wait a sec. Who has run Boeing for the last 25 years? A series of Jack Welch protégés who studied with him at General Electric and starting in 1997, deliberately, explicitly, on the record, said they were starting to make Boeing more like GE. And this is what it got them. Mm. What's the current trend with CEOs now <laughs> that you're saying? Okay. <laughs> um, listen, there, there are some good eggs out there. A, a lot of people say, like, who's the, who's the Jack Welch of the day? Or is there, a, is there an, an anti-Welch of the day? And my answer is, like, there's not w one person who, who, who personifies either, like, his excess in the negative or the positive. Because he was truly so influential in his heyday with control of what, what he, be, he made into the most valuable company in the world. He literally took GE and he, you know, he gets credit for this. And this is a part of the record too. GE's market capitalization was $14 billion when he took over. It was $600 billion right before he retired. That's real. That's shareholder value creation right there, right? And, and so it's, it's hard to find someone who has both that kind of a business clout, but also the cultural clout that he possessed. Now, are there some CEOs doing good things? Absolutely. And I, I write about them in the last chapter of the book. I don't need to call them out here. But yeah, you can find CEOs that are trying to undo what I call Welchism, right? Mm. This, this endemic mode of operating like Jack Welch has just become standard operating procedure. Mm. But is that catching on? Is that like becoming the default mode of operating in corporate America? I'm afraid to say not. 
quiet quitting, I don't know if it was just like a, an August story, probably, right? <laughs> There's like not much to write about in August, so a term like quiet quitting can really yeah. take off. Um, <laughs> but that that's very much at odds with uh, probably many CEOs and um, as people are trying to get back to work at places like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. Well, um, what is your thought on quiet quitting? Is it just a moment? Is it a generational thing? Or are people suddenly going to be... Finding they don't have a job. I, I think beyond like the, the term, like we've talked about lying flat, we've yeah, talked about quiet. Yeah, yeah, like, it's like, like, we're just looking for new words to describe the fact August. that people don't want to work August in the story, summer. Right? It's an August story, right? It's an August story. Right. But, but, but I, listen, I, I think a couple of things are, are a part of this conversation. One, I think workers have, have lost a sense of purpose. By and large. And after the last couple of years, that's not so hard to understand. It sure like, isn't. You know, we've all lost a little bit of a sense of ourselves yeah. if you've been alone. And if you've had three kids screaming around you, you've really lost a sense of yourself, right? <laughs> Whether you're alone or you have a lot of kids, right? Much less. Yes, <laughs> I know this for a fact. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that's a part of it. I think another part of what's going on is is, is just frankly the 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 the... the the schisms, the, 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 the gulfs in the haves and have-nots in our mm. economy have just been exposed in really brutal ways over the last several years. And, and one of the things that happened, right, is if, if you remember in 2019, August, it was almost three, it was three years ago, like to the practically the week, the CEOs of the biggest corporations came out and said, we, the business roundtable, the largest CEOs of the world, are saying, like, we are going to change the narrative. And there's a new oh, era of, right. of, of kinder, gentle capitalism on the horizon. And they all flew off to Davos. Well, fine. They flew off to Davos. <laughs> they heard about the pandemic there because I was with them in Davos. And people were like, wait, what is this pandemic thing? And then a month later, the pandemic hits. And what's their first response? They, like, fire or furlough their workers en masse. And there's actually this amazing study that was done that showed that the CEOs who had signed that damn pledge were more likely to fire their workers than the ones who had not. Oh. Right? And so that, like, there's your change Wasn't there a big ad with all of their names? I think I vaguely remember that in, in, in a newspaper <laughs> somewhere. So, so some people in the audience are breaking out in hives because they bought that damn ad. <laughs> Sorry, I do remember. <laughs> um, but, oh, but, 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 okay, but, but the point I want to make there is like, there was an opportunity for change, right? Yeah. There, there was a moment for companies to put up or shut up, to really make good on these lofty promises they made, and so many of them just utterly failed. So I suppose the elephant in the room is what role government should play, but I know there's lots of inter smart, interesting people here in the audience, and someone's going to probably ask a question on that. So I will leave that one alone. Um, but let's talk about your, your new gig. Why, why mm. climate? And, and how can we, as um, consumers of media, be a better audience around climate storytelling? Like, Ooh, that's a great question I haven't yeah. got before. Okay. okay, so, I mean, briefly, I don't want to bore you with, like, my <laughs> resume, but I, I was, I've been on the business desk at the New York Times for nine years. Earlier this year, I moved to the climate desk, but I'm still sort of writing about business, but through the lens of climate. And the reason I made that choice is because when I looked around and started trying to think, like, what is the single most important story that's just going to define business, not, not, not just business, but like politics in our lives and the weather and my children's lives for the next many decades, like, it, it's climate. You could make a case for the decline of democracy, but climate's not going anywhere either. Maybe we can fix democracy. Climate's going to be like a whole society effort. 
And so when I thought about what I wanted to get smart on, uh, that was it. So I made the choice to go start writing climate stories. The second question is such a, a great one that I haven't, I, you're putting me on the spot here. Well, I haven't I thought about it. But, but I mean, I think the answer is, is, is talking about climate, right? In, in moments, like, I've been to a lot of these salons. Thank you very much. I don't remember the last time we had a conversation about how we as individuals could have a more impactful relationship yeah. with we li I'd like to climate, do better with right? that, just generally. Like, how can we have more of an impact within our own okay. community here? If this is the story of our generation, yeah. what are we all doing about it is mm -hmm. a great way to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I don't have perfect answers for you, yeah. but I love the fact, and I think it's so telling, right? The, it, us having this conversation right now is like validation for me taking this new job. Good. Yeah, good. I mean, I think we just, cer certainly our eyes shouldn't glaze over. Right. <laughs> Um, I know we have a lot of questions here in the audience, and we're going to start music soon-ish. Uh, so who has questions? Fire, fire away. Yes, Mary. I have a question. Whistleblowing attorney. <laughs> well, I have a question about um, how you relate to the CEOs that you've been reporting on, mm. uh, the GE CEO, and private equity. Is that private equity very similar? So <laughs> what's your view on the similarities? Rachel, you want to come? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so, with so Jack Welch died just before uh, the pandemic really hit the U.S. in earnest, like the very week. And there's a whole backstory. He really around. had timing. He also retired like, a few days before before nine eleven. Can't, can't right? say the man didn't have a sense of timing. He had a really good timing in his life. Um, so, so I was not able to interview him for the book. Uh, I did interview his his designated successor, chosen successor, Jeff Immelt. Uh, over more than two hours for the book, and we and that's on the record in the book. Um, in terms of private equity, I, I there's a whole section in the book that describes how people a describe GE by the time Jack was done with it as like more like a vet private equity or venture capital firm than it was like an industrial corporation. He bought a lot of companies. Well, and, and b for those senior executives at GE who didn't go on to run their own for-profit corporations, the lion's share of them went into private equity. And Jack himself was a, an advisor to private equity firms. Right? That's how he chose to spend his retirement. Um, so there's absolutely no doubt that private equity saw what GE was doing and, and essentially replicated the, the Welch playbook. And I document that in the book. Mm. Of the, specific to the corner office, of the 100 we interviewed, which one would you be if you had to be a CEO? Oh, if I had to be, oh, no one's, everyone's like, what's your favorite? But no, if no, I no. had, had to, to be, be if I had to be a CEO, gentlemen. gentlemen and gentlewomen, because my answer, go for it. Eileen Fisher, Eileen Fisher, God bless this woman. Who knows Eileen Fisher? Like, Eileen Fisher. Has anyone hung out with Eileen Fisher? I feel like she and I have a lot of mutual friends. This woman yeah. is fantastic. Oh my gosh, I love her. And like we've 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 hung out over the yeah. years. Yeah. This woman is like so tuned in. She is like operating on a different astral plane, and I love her for it. So, who do I want to be? I want to be like Eileen. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that during Jack's period, he was um, it was good for the executives and not mm. good for the union workers. So I wonder, like, could you give some insight into that? Because we're a room full of intellectuals. I don't know if there's any union workers here. I, I'm, I'm in a union. 
Well, there you go. That's wonderful. But it's like, what I'm, I'm curious what it was like for them. You know, I love the Tenement Museum, and I love looking at different periods of class. So, like, what what is what was that, and is that like? Yeah, so so it, it, there's there's no like one simple easy answer because they employed hundreds of thousands of people. On balance, during Jack's tenure, he never went to war with the unions, but union representation inside GE steadily eroded from yeah, I forget the exact numbers, but I don't know what it was, 30 or 40 percent of the, like the frontline workforce to down into the teens, and that mirrored a similar decline in union representation across the country, right? And like we're in a potential like nascent moment of a union renaissance, labor renaissance. Many. Potentially many. great, but like we got to, there's a lot of damage to undo. So if you were a unionized worker, listen, you were, uh, w the way he did that was not by like going to war with the unions and, you know, bulwarism, if you know, like for union aficionados. That was Lemuel Boumoir, the head of uh, employee relations from GE from the 1950s. So they have had contentious relationships with their unionized workforce. Jack figured out a different way to do it. Outsourcing and offshoring. He essentially identified his highest unionized portions of the workforce and either sent those jobs overseas or found other non-unionized work in the United States to do that for them. And as a result, union membership steadily declined. So listen, you probably got fired. Now, if you somehow were in the union and managed to keep your job and accrued GE stock or bought it at a discount and were able to sell before the stock tanked after his retirement, you maybe did okay. Those people are out there, right? So like, so they, and maybe they are the exceptions to prove the rule. But on balance, if you like the unionized workforce, on balance did not do great during his tenure. Mm. Yes. So many. <laughs> all right. Okay. Of all the CEOs you interviewed, who was like the shittiest and lamest? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You can't answer this question. Part A, part B, can you kind of imitate them? No. Oh. No. No. Okay, maybe. <laughs> if you want to see an imitation of, the, of the shittiest CEO, watch 30 Rock and watch Jack Donahue, yeah. who's modeled after Jack Rock. There's your imitation of a shitty CEO. Okay? But, but no, the, the, the easy answer is is the ones who literally were Jack Welch protégés. Not only not only the people who actually worked for Jack, but also those who came from private equity firms who followed the GE playbook. People like Bernardo Hess, who was running Kraft Heinz when I interviewed him and talked about how Jack great Jack Welch was, as they were like slashing R and D, pumping up what. I don't mean morally. I mean as an interview subject. Oh. <laughs> like you're playing a really bad instrument. Oh. Uh, I, don't, I honestly don't think about it like that. Yeah. Right? Like I'm, I'm there to do my job and like if, 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 if they... Everyone's they, got weird they, social texts. Right, the, the, the answer to me, right? Like the, the, I'm listening to what they're saying. Yeah. And so if they're just spewing bullshit, that's a terrible interview too. Yeah. 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 There. I think that's probably the right... Yeah. Yes. David, is it uh, the cult of the CEO that is to blame, or is it the cult of press that creates the cult of the CEO? Uh, oh. You guys, I've just finished writing a TV show about Silicon Valley, and two of the themes are like the relationship with the media and the cult of founder, yeah. and also cult of failure. Yeah. Like we, we fetishize that too much, I think, certainly out in startup world. Yeah. But, but the relationship between the press just and, and, and startups is, is something to behold, yeah. Isn't Dom, Dom yeah. makes a perfectly valid point, which is that for most of those 20 years, yeah. Welch had the press wrapped around his finger, and so many others did too. And listen, for so much of the late 80s and the 90s especially, like as long as the stock market was going up, 
the press and especially the business press was like, great. Yeah. Like all, all in with very it's cheery news and it makes America look good. Like we're all on board, right? Hey, I mean, why there not? There you go. And you so, is it, right? And, and, and so did, did the press sort of unconditionally lionize lots of CEOs for creating shareholder value? No doubt about it. Is there still plenty of that going on right now? Certainly. I think there were like some recent uh, mini-series on TV that examined some of them at companies like WeWork, where you used to work. <laughs> and, and wait, where did you work before that? Oh, it was GE. <laughs> but here you are in a salon. <laughs> so yes, the media is partially to blame, but so are the corporate communications executives that pitch flattering stories. Andrea, yes? Okay, both of you. Jill will speak for us. <laughs> Quick comment. We've been told that a lot of people are focusing on CEOs because nothing can get done yeah. in D.C., so we need you CEOs and you, you companies to... Okay, go good. I wanted some of this kind So we're getting a lot of that, whether it's firearms or LGBT yeah. or voting rights or whatever. Like, if the companies can use their influence to get something... Is that because their employees are... Oh, the employees, uh, are, the employees are pushing, and the CEO's like, I came here to be a CEO of a semiconductor company, not necessarily <laughs> I mean, be an expert you, on this. It's not about, I'm not talking about league tables or earnings anymore. Yeah. I'm talking about, do you care, do you give back, are you part of the solution? Right. I have people come for job interviews at 22 that I think are going to kiss up to me, and they say, why are you lending to a coal company? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a question, which is, if you were standing in front of a Fortune 50 CEO, not one of ours. Uh, like, what general advice would you give them on what they should be focusing on as they run their company? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it, I, 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 try, I, I try not to be too sympathetic to CEOs, but I recognize that, that, that exactly what Joe's talking about, which is the, the new layer of social and political pressures and obligations that CEOs have to contend with. And listen, I, this, is, this was the through line of my five years of corner office and my seven years of reporting on CEOs for the Times was trying to unpack all this. I mean, you guys know this because we talked about it with some frequency, is how CEOs navigate that is, is super, super tough. And I think it's, it's, it's getting tougher still, right? Like the, and this is what I'm writing about on the climate desk right now, is frankly the Republican war on ESG and climate action. That is, that is the theme of my stories right now. Mm. Like I've, the last several mean, big mm. climate stories I've written are about this. The next several are also mm. going to be about this. And what they are saying is, right, like the, the, cons, the, the call it what you will, the Republicans, the conservative, MAGA, they are all saying companies need to stay out of politics, need to stay out of dis debates about all the things you just mentioned, including gun rights, including the environment, including LGBTQ everything like that is not your business and you tell that to a ceo who's got employees coming in and saying like why are you lending to coal companies you got a problem with no easy answers morgan and this is the last question Susan is there more the questions than you I'm here. in the office yeah because we have music which i'm excited yeah. for okay well, i'm pushing better food for like 12 yeah and to what you just said I sometimes wonder, and I mean, this is my livelihood, but is it ever going to get better, even when we have all these great startups, if the government doesn't stop subsidizing meat and, and everything for that matter? But they're, at, I think, up to like 50 billion a year that they're subsidizing. Chloe Sorvino at Forbes or Fortune. Forbes has a book coming out on the meat industry in December. That could be another salon. <laughs> yeah, if that's what the conservatives want to say, then they can't like, say both sides. You know, right. and so I don't know how it ever ends because that's a huge amount of money, 
and they're not like that climate bill just passed and he didn't he barely put anything towards food. Right. Which right. is I think well they don't they don't even take into account food waste when they're looking at the numbers right. and how that's affecting the environment. And I guess my question is but what do you say to that? Okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna completely dodge the food question because I am not a food expert. But I want to I, I want to try to end by trying to answer the first part of the question, which is like, will things ever change? And and, and I really spent some time as I wrote the book trying to think about the answer to that question, right? Because I'm like, am I just like you know like just throwing my hands up in the air with this book? And at the end of the day, I I, I came down in sort of a measured. No but. And, and what I mean by that is the story I tell in the book is, is, a, is really a 70 or 80 year story, right? It starts in the years after World War II and it takes us all the way to where we are right now. And it was a generational project to get from like, what some people call the golden age of capitalism, that 1953 GE annual report, to the intellectual forebearers of Jack Welch and his movement who were people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, who started explicitly saying that the role of business was to maximize its profits and government should stay out of the way. And then Jack and his protégés absolutely making that the dominant operating reality across corporate America. That's, that is a 70-year story. I think that we are like maybe at that moment where the pendulum starts to swing back in the other direction. But it doesn't swing fast, right? There's that moment where it's sort of stuck on one side. It's these 22-year-olds coming and giving right. him a hard time, that, I think, is maybe what it starts to see the change. And maybe we're starting to move in the other direction. <laughs> but if it happens, it's also going to be a generational project. It's also going to take decades. And listen, I, I, in the book, I try to point to some solutions. I try to point to some people who are starting to do that work. But I am under no illusion that it's going to happen anytime fast. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for joining us. So, you need like five minutes? So, oops, everyone grab a cocktail. Woo. Nia and DJ Thank are going to so perform. Good. They're going to perform down here, and I know Nia's voice and DJ, they're very loud, so they will control you. Okay. Woo. I know that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish Best. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. That's at McTavish Best on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.